0: So glad you are here worshiping with us in person. Um, I'm super happy to be here. I don't know if people uh, have the same joy that I have. Like when you gather with other believers, it's stinking awesome. Um, so this is it's one of those things where we've, we've recognized through this season uh, of, of a pandemic, however you fall in terms of interpreting it, one of the things that's really cool is that it's really re-highlighted the, nece- the necessity of community and of gathering. So we're seeing things like our life groups explode, which is awesome, praise God. But we're also seeing like things like this. This is awesome. It's way better preaching to a sanctuary with people in it. Um, let me tell you. Because people's faces and the exchange of relationship and knowing who God has made us to be, bring those things together is awesome. It's praiseworthy. It's, it's great that we get together. Um, you're, you're here by no small chance. And so if you're a visitor here this morning, it's awesome. So glad you're here. If you're a regular, I've been here a number of times, I'm also glad and excited that you're here. Turn with me in your Bibles to 987 in the Pew Bible or 1 Thessalonians 4. Now we're going to be unpacking today. Uh, and I use that term for Dana Stuber. She likes when I say unpack. So, um, I'm going to say it like eight times today if I can. But here's the deal. Today we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter 4. And when we're looking at First Thessalonians, the first eight verses are really going to walk through a little bit of what Paul is telling us regarding this idea of sexual immorality. Now, I said it out loud, okay? And I'm going to keep saying it out loud because I want to normalize this idea that every one of you in here has struggled with at one time or another some level of immorality that is not as God intended. And so let's just level the playing field and say, we're all failures, right? We're all here together looking at the word of God, declaring its truth over us, his power in us in Jesus Christ, and we're going to read his word over our experience. And I want to define that real quickly. Over my experience means my experience does not define me. What I did in the past does for the future, where I'm going now, how I'm living right now, is not defined by the sin that I struggled with last night or last week or that I'm going to struggle with next week. It's this word that's defining me. It's God's true word that defines me, not my past, not my sin, not my struggle. I am God's. And I hope you get that. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest. Father, walk with us today as we read your word and live by its truth. Amen. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you. Sorry, we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay, we're just going to pause there. I'm going to read each verse by chunks, or each chunk by verses, however that works. Um, and you're going to see that the main thing that we're getting at today, more than anything, is that knowing God leads me to live a life of purity and love. Okay, so that's a real short sentence. Write it down, jot it down, commit it to memory. Knowing God leads me to live in purity and love, or I'm walking in purity and love. The critical thing that we see here in the first two verses is this. It's a walk. Knowing God is a walk. And You're like, well, what do you mean by walk? Well, let me just put it this way. A walk is um, a way of living. We don't really say that. We don't talk that way anymore in the 21st century. Um, But uh, my kids would use a word that I don't even know is really a word. They would say things like, in the olden times, did they have cell phones? No, in the olden times, they didn't. But the reality is, you would hear this phrase before, how someone walks is how they live. Now, maybe it would be helpful for us if we framed it this way. Have you? Uh, who's a fast walker? Raise your hand. Okay, all of you both go around. The, the rest of us, right? So, and notice, it was always like a husband or a wife. You hardly ever have two fast walkers in a family, it just doesn't happen. Because you know what happens is like maybe the wife can like motor and the husband's like he's a saunter. Yep, he just kind of like this. Have you ever gotten caught behind someone who's a slower walker than you? Is it maddening? It's like, come on, dude, speed up. But you know what I found? I have found that those people who walk really slow, there's something different. There's something different about maybe the way they, the pace of life that they take things. They walk slow, they make decisions slow, and you're like, come on, make a faster decision. But invariably, the person who walks slow just seems to be wiser. Not always the case, right? But just when I think of somebody who walks slow, I think of that. And so when we start to look at knowing God being a walk, we're looking at this idea of what Paul is saying in those first two verses. He said, finally then, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus. It's so funny because Paul is saying, we urge you in the Lord Jesus, but his encouragement is for something they're already doing. His encouragement is like, an urge is not just like a nice little suggestion, right? Um, The last time I told my children to clean up my room was not a suggestion, Okay, like, hey, Oliver, Jada, Pierce, I want you guys to go clean up your rooms. That was not like a negotiable piece. It was an urging, do it. It's a command, do it. And so Paul is saying, I urge you. And you're like, urge what? To do it more and more. But he uses this phrase, and and, and we actually saw it in the song. In the song, it talks about this idea that I can't overcome, but Christ in me. And, And here's a picture where he says, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. Now it's critical that Paul is using the term Lord and Jesus at the same time, right? Because Lord communicates this idea of authority, this communicates this idea of Savior, of Messiah. And so he's saying, we urge you with authority and saving grace to do more and more what you're already doing. You're like, well, why does it really matter that he urges in the Lord Jesus? Well, let me put it this way you like fish bowls or you know fish bowls, right? You got a fish bowl and you put a little, drop a little uh, goldfish in there. Okay, there's certain boundaries to that fish bowl. The glass contains the water. If I take that fish and snatch him out and set him down on the floor, how well is he going to do? But he's not. He's not going to survive long. He might flop and forth a little bit. Um, and the reality is that this, it, boundaries that God puts in place Boundaries that Jesus Himself sets for us are ordained because of His love. Think of a fish in an ocean longing to spend an afternoon on the land. And you're like, dude, you've got 75% of the globe that you can explore, and you're like wanting the other 25%. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny how we do it? We always the boundaries that are set for us, we're like, yeah, actually, I think on the other side of that boundary is something better. And we're going to see how, how that and how that's unhelpful for us. But more than anything, the boundaries, the fishbowl, and we're the goldfish, we're in Jesus. The boundaries are ordained because of his love. And then he says that we want you to walk how you ought to walk to please God. Well, Hebrews 11 is clear. And you can make a note of this. Hebrews 11:6 talks about this idea that without faith, it's impossible to do what? To please God. Now, I would argue, now, everyone may not be on the same page in here because I'm, I'm not foolish enough to believe that everybody in here has surrendered their life to Jesus. I'm so happy you're here because you're gonna hear about it. But not everybody has. Those of us who have surrendered our life to Jesus, think of this. Think of this idea that... Um, if you ask the question of somebody who loves Jesus, do you want to please him? Do you want to please the Lord? The simple question is like, yes. I mean, the answer, yes, of course, I want to please God. Well, how do you do that? Do you do that through effort, like doing things really well and making sure you attend church and tied the right amount? And... I mean, those things are good, but those things ultimately aren't going to earn you any favor with him. It's faith that pleases God. And so Paul is giving this instruction when he's there. If you remember, it's Acts 16 and 17, really looks at the establishment of the church. And in that, Paul only spent three weeks with them. So in three weeks' time, Paul is unpacking all this for them. There you go, Dana, unpack a second time. Okay, But how powerful is it? If you look at Colossians chapter 2, Paul actually says this, that just as you received Christ, so walk in him. And over and over and over again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, um, this, or verse 6, says um, this whole idea that whoever claims he abides in Christ must walk as Jesus did. Over and over in the New Testament, the idea of a, a life of faith with God is looked at as a walk. Not a sprint, not a hard, fast Get it done and over with, but a long haul of endurance and patience and joy walking. So think about that for just a minute. Knowing God is a walk, and Paul says in Colossians 2: just as you received him, so walk in him. So let me ask you the question, and you guys feel free to respond. We'll do this every time I preach. (laughs) How did you receive Jesus? Okay, don't tell me it was at church camp when you were 17. That's awesome. I'm saying how. How did you arrive at the point of receiving Jesus? Go ahead and toss out your answers. I'll wait till everybody's appropriately nervous. How did you receive Jesus? Yeah, need. Anybody else? What? Fear. That's a good one. You know, so many people understand the idea of God's love for them because of... His wrath. <laughs> so we don't want to sweep that under the rug too quickly, like it doesn't matter. Actually, it matters quite a bit. That's a good one. Anybody else? What? Like a child. Okay. Yeah, failure. Came to Jesus in failure. Surrender. Yeah, it's the only way. Okay, think of all those things that we've just heard. Paul is saying, How'd you receive him? Well, you were humble. Another thing would be you were broken. Another thing may be that you were dependent. And here's probably the biggest one. You were, and let me rephrase that, you are desperate. Without him, you are desperate, hopelessly desperate. And so Paul's saying, okay, the instructions that we gave you in that three-week stint where we planted this church... Uh, humble, broken, dependent, desperate, do that. Do that every day. Live that way all the time. You're like, oh, what? That's kind of a game changer. That means I can't really have like a leg up on somebody else because I'm good. That means that I'm like humble and, and I love and forgive like I am. Yeah, good. <laughs> you see where we're going with this. We want a humble body of believers who express the love of Jesus like he intends. And some of you may say, well, I'm walking alone. If, If knowing God is a walk, I'm walking alone. I'm glad you're here. That's the whole point. You ought not to walk alone. God wants you. God wants you in relationship with Him and relationship with others. You see, this little two verse chunk in verses one and two of chapter four shows me they were doing things well. But Paul still urges them more to live a particular way. Why? I just say it this way. Because we all need encouragement. We all need assurance. He says, um, just as you are doing. That little phrase, just as you are doing. And, and I would just put it this way. That any of us who are parents in the room, we have an understanding that um, when our kids are in crisis mode, when something has happened, and, they, and, and their minds are so like locked in to like God, i can 't figure it out, and, and obviously they 're in the jam because they did something dumb, maybe they sinned, or maybe they just they, they are too young and immature and they just missed the mark, right, and they need at that moment, is it best to come in with a sweeping correction? Like, rarely does that help. The time for instruction usually isn't the crisis. And so Paul is employing something for us to understand. Don't wait till the crisis to come to me. I urge you more and more to live a particular way while you're doing well, because when you're not doing well, and James says you've got to count it all joy, guess what? Then you'll have a foundation. You won't be rocked, you won't be tottering, you won't be falling over, you won't be under your... Right? Right? Because you think that's been established. And the problem is most of us are like motoring through life in dug mode, doing things all by myself. And then all of a sudden crisis hits and we're like, oh, I need to come back to Jesus. And he's like, I've been here all along. Come on. All along. So knowing God means I walk in purity and love because knowing God is a walk. Second thing, and this is where we're probably going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, is this. Knowing God is a walk of purity. Verse 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And I'll, I'll define terms, because sometimes we can get lost in terms. This Is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality? That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's critical. We'll return to that. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because of the Lord. Sorry, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, But in holiness. Therefore, this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There's tons of us here. And the basic idea that we want to communicate is is that knowing God, being a walk of purity, is that God accepts me and journeys with me. You're like, well, how do you get that from the text? If you look closely, he says first of all that it's god's will there's not a single person who follows after god as a disciple of his who would not want to know his will usually again we wait until the crisis i have to decide on college i need to decide on a spouse what to do with this extra money that's been gifted to me i need so we wait until there's something big and then we're like god what is what's your plan as though God's been kind of withholding it and there's like a key and a secret and God kind of holds back. There's this idea here that God sometimes is quite explicit. His will is for us to not be sexually immoral. Okay, that's a real problem for like everyone in here. (laughs) It's a real problem for me, right? Because if I believe Jesus's words in Matthew and, and I've lusted after another woman in my heart and I have, I've committed adultery on my wife. I have broken my marriage vow with my wife. Every man in here has done that. Just let that sink in for a minute. We are an entire room full of adulterers. So we are equally, equally in a bad place. Just let that settle for a minute. Because he says God's will is that like, hey, I want to know God's will for my life. Okay, then don't be sexually immoral. You're like, crud. (laughs) Not that will. Like, maybe something else about a decision that benefits me. But look at what Paul does. Paul actually aims by saying, um, I don't want you to live in passionate lust like the Gentiles. And I would just say it like this. You and I act everyone in this room, everyone in the world, we act in untamed passion when we pretend not to know God. Why? Because knowing God has consequences. And I'm not saying that like in a bad sense. Knowing God has consequences, right? In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, there's this phrase. It says, Adam knew his wife. And you're like, that's great. And she conceived. You're like, oh, So, like, knowing someone has consequences. And and, and in that sense, with Adam and Eve, knowing was a sense that led to a byproduct. You're like, huh. So, metaphorically speaking, if I know God intimately, there are consequences that are awesome. If I know God intimately, then then this whole idea of, uh, of knowing his will, that it's his will for me not to be sexually immoral... Then the consequence is that he's going to provide something to make that actually a possibility. Oh, that's awesome. That totally shifts your thinking. Then, because when you when you hear the idea or the word sexual immorality that you see, um, it, when I was younger, and and. Every rumbled who lived in the same house. We <laughs> walked in the kitchen, we had, it wasn't an island. It was more of a peninsula, right? Peninsula is water on three sides. So there was the, the, the island peninsula, the, the, the countertop peninsula, and the furthest left drawer, Sherry, that was the junk drawer, right? The f- top furthest left drawer. I could get duct tape. I could get pliers. I could get a flashlight. I could get car keys. I could probably get a rain jacket or some matches. Like Everything was in there. And it was so well organized, right? Because when you have that many kids, everything's like got its place, right? <laughs> Julia I comes over you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> but here's, here's the deal. The term sexual immorality in the Greek is just, it's the Bible's junk drawer term for anything sexually immoral. So it's not just... Uh, it's actually porné. It's from where we get our, our Greek, our English word pornography. It's not just pornography. It's like everything that's not as God intended for sex. You're like, whoa. So that's a game changer. <laughs> that means like anything I look at online, any sort of like emotional affair that I may have that like arouses something that shouldn't be, um, any sort of like material that I view, any sort of relationship that I have. Any, Anything that is outside the confines of a man and a woman in marriage not allowed by God. Everything else is sexually immoral. Everything else outside of the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman, immoral. And every one of us has failed. And so then we have to sit back and go, uh, now what? I want you to turn with me and keep your... Finger in the scripture of first um, Thessalonians four, but first corinthians six now Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that is prolifically immoral, like they are the model for immorality and how to um, how to pander sexuality in ways that are unpleasing to God. in fact, uh, most of what we get in terms of like Gross and indecent comes from Corinth. They were also the church that like, had the greatest thing going on with spiritual gifts. So isn't it crazy how God works? <laughs> so anyway, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, he says this in verse 9. And he's talking to these people who've been saved out of this. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You're like, yeah, preach, Paul. And then he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor revilers, nor swindlers, <clears throat> nor, or sorry, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor, th- nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. I don't know if I like that verse. Not a huge fan of all that. (laughs) And then he says this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What you were is not what you are and it's not where you're going. Who determines that? Jesus, God in his sovereignty gave us Jesus, accomplished what we couldn't, puts his spirit within us so that we live in the boundaries that he has in purity and love. Man, this mean then that if I am someone who has lived sexually immoral, even last night or last week or two years ago or 20 years ago, that must mean that there's Redemption. Man, that's good news. That is incredible news for the, for the person here who is like, I have been crushed by my sin. And it doesn't even have to just be sexual immorality. Put anything outside the boundaries of loving God rightly. And he's saying, here you go. Such were some of you. But it is no longer. So it means that redemption is possible. That's powerful stuff. Because it says that God called us in holiness. Like, well, holiness has this picture of, like, perfection. That's not me. Yeah, but, um, again, Jesus. Right? Most of us are coming up on Thanksgiving, and we'll probably have some level of a celebration where we'll eat together despite the pandemic. Right? We'll probably gather with other family members. Now, some, and and probably not the younger generation, but maybe the older generation, maybe you guys have fine china. Right? Like, um, dishes that are saved for just such an occasion. And you pull those dishes out and you wash them clean and you set them on the table ready to do their intended purpose. To hold an awesome meal and celebration and communion with friends and family. The same way that you wash the dish is the same way that God has He's washed you and cleaned you so that you could walk in purity and love. Not so that you could continue on. It actually makes no sense if you claim Christ to continue on in some level of immorality. It's actually stupid. And I don't mean that meanly, I just mean it like plain. <laughs> Notice how Paul doesn't do the scare tactic, you know? He doesn't do the, uh, the appeal to purity for personal gain. The appeal to purity for personal gain is like, hey, look, if you have multiple partners, you'll probably end up with like an STD, and then your family's gonna be messed up, and then you're gonna have all sorts of struggles in your life. Um doesn't he doesn't go at it from that angle he actually says something different he says be careful that nobody wrongs his brother in this matter and so bring the vengeance of god you're like man that's weird why would he say that because of this he he approaches purity for how it impacts the community so my sexual sin is not just about me. It's actually going to end up being about my wife, and then it's actually going to end up being about my kids, and then it's going to actually end up being about who I. Do you see what the difference is? All of a sudden, the community is disrupted because I chose to walk outside the boundaries of God's love and grace. I chose not to be somebody who is pure and loving. Instead, I just kind of lever desires. And guess what that does? It kills the community. Because you can't be in community and be selfish. That's a game changer. Can't be in community and be selfish. But all of us are. So we have to continue to return this idea that our washing and our sanctification and our salvation all come from Jesus. It's just interesting that Paul also, in 2 Corinthians 7, ends up talking about um, godly sorrow and how godly sorrow leads to real, true repentance. Okay, Maybe... Just maybe, some of you were more sorry that you got caught than you wounding the Holy Spirit over your sin, and perhaps that's why you persist in the particular sin that you still struggle with. And sometimes it's helpful to have a picture that's a snapshot for your sin. So think of like the person that you love and respect most, and just think which is harder for you. Is it harder for me if I say something horrible to them and they get mad in return? Or if I say something horrible to them and their shoulders drop and they just start weeping right in front of me. I say option B is way harder. And so does God. In fact, we learn later on in Thessalonians that we grieve the Holy Spirit. So our sin is actually something sadness to a personal being, to God himself. It's not just about anger. It's about like deep sadness. And the question, Paul is making the questionable not the questionable, the connection that it's when you get sad over your sin for his sake, not for yours, that things really begin to change. And you'll say, well, well Doug, it's, it's really hard to talk about sexual matters. Okay, granted, I agree. Paul did it in three weeks with people he just met. Now we're really out of excuses, <laughs> right? Now we're really at this place where it's like, uh, so I... So, like, I should talk about it. Yeah, and the reason why? Because if not here, where? If not in the context of a Jesus-loving home, when? Right? I would rather my kids and my family and our church family have this discussion frankly right now and make you more uncomfortable than when you were when you walked in here than let you walk out blissfully still sinning. I don't want that. I wouldn't be doing my job and, and honestly, exactly what Tim was praying, we wouldn't be preaching with any level of boldness if you walked out of here still cozy, comfortable, right? My goal is not to make you comfortable. It's to help you be more holy like Jesus. And so I just say this, that the key is it's all about God. From a truth to life perspective, the one who calls us and equips us with his Holy Spirit. And if you think about it, The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit that lives inside of you because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so don't tell me you cannot overcome a particular sin. Because if that same spirit can bring death to life, what have you got that's greater? You just don't. So if your sexual immorality has hurt the community... Why don't you let the community help heal the hurt by prayer? So afterwards we're going to have an opportunity. This is this is something I think most of us will in a place of sin because of privacy. I don't want no one to know that I've ever struggled. Listen, let me just like level the playing field right now. I struggle with lust. I hate it. I hate that. I want to be totally rid of it, but I would be lying to you if I said that it doesn't cross my mind and enter my heart. And so that means that everybody in here now has permission to say, okay, like just let the guard down, man. <laughs> just let the guard down and let somebody in. It doesn't have to be me. I don't care if I know. I don't, it's not my job to know your sin, right? It's the people that you're in life with and close to. They're the ones who in and walk with you in confidentiality, and grace, and mercy, and peace. They should. So afterwards, I'm going to hang out up here, and if anybody wants to come for prayer, you're totally welcome. Tim Barrow is going to be the elder in the office. He's ready for a flood of people who want to be prayed over and prayed with, okay? And we have other elders um, and other men and women of faith who are here who would totally be willing to pray with you because I don't have the answer for your sin apart from Jesus. I don't have the answer or the hope or the solution or the redemption apart from Jesus. Finally, knowing God is a walk of purity and love. You see, God teaches us his priorities in the church and help us be a witness. The last few verses in Thessalonians 4, Thessalonians 4 says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, and here he goes again, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let me just say this real quick in closing. Paul says that they are taught by God. These people had an encounter with God. Okay, have you? Have you had an encounter with God where, where you're in his word and you are so wrecked over your sin and so like hope-filled over his redemption that you just can't stop thinking about it throughout the course of the day, have you? And if you haven't, do you long for it? Do you seek after an encounter with God that is informed by the truth and foundation of his word? Do you? Because if you're not seeking after those things and you're still hoping that you're somehow going to get dislodged from your sin, you're not. And Paul actually, he, 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 again, he returns this idea of walking. And so he's saying walking before outsiders, meaning the way that I live and carry myself in Jesus is what's going to draw people into an understanding of what it means to have a relationship with him. That's so powerful, it's so awesome. And the question is, why aren't more people engaging in life that way? And Paul says, well, one reason might be because you need to learn to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands. And you're like, well, that's just Paul giving them instructions about how to like, you know, build another tree no, it's not. It's actually kind of telling us very clearly and very plainly that one of the greatest destroyers of community is the meddling Christian. If you if you are in a conversation that starts with, I heard, run. The meddling Christian ought not to ever be. It destroys community when when you get your information about someone's life by proxy. Not from the source. Or if you get it from the source and share it, that's called gossip. (laughs) And that will kill community. Because who in their right mind wants to be vulnerable if one else is going to take and share what's yours with someone you didn't give permission to? So we want to be people who understand what that looks like. We want to be people who live and walk in purity and love. And so truth to life, maybe just this week as, as we wrap up, just as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, as Paul talks about, humble, broken. But I would say if you want something even more practical, um, my wife has a, a shirt And I love uh, what it says. It's just super straightforward. It just just says, be rooted. And it's from Ephesians 3.17, to be rooted in love. And the picture that's created with this is like this Ephesians 1 through 3 mindset. when, When Paul says that you, in Ephesians 1, he talks about this idea that you are holy, chosen, blameless, loved, adopted, predestined, children of God, redeemed and forgiven. Okay, all those things happened, Before the foundation of the world, before anything was ever created, God did all those things. So that means it can never be taken away and totally changes us from the inside out. So as we wrap up, let me just remind us that we can, um, you guys are gonna be dismissed by row by the uh, ushers. Um, If you wanna hang in the sanctuary for prayer, that'd be awesome. If you'd like uh, a prayer or conversation, you can see Tim in the office. or if there are other people who brought you here or that you trust, I would encourage you, um, strike while the iron is hot when it comes to the conviction that you're sensing from the Spirit right now. Okay? So Father, we do love you, and we ask that right now, the Holy Spirit, you loose people from this place of uh, privacy and secrecy and move them toward knowing who you are and seeking assistance through prayer, knowing that, Lord, you are the one who brings renewal and draws people to repentance. We love you, Jesus, and we ask that you walk with us now this pray, Jesus. Amen.